Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. How are you? What's going on? I hope you're doing well. I have a great show for you today. The guest is Mike McGinnis, author of the new novel, Drowning Practice. The thing that felt good to me, the thing that made me feel like I might have something was that I loved the characters and they cared about each other. And that's one of those things that I can rearrange everything else around that as long as the characters care about each other, as long as I care about the characters. Um, and I think I, I love them more than I I really loved anybody I've ever written about because of how much they care about each other. That was Mike McGinnis. His new novel, Drowning Practice, is available now from Echo Books. It is the official March pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. For those of you who are new to the show, thenervousbreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community going back to 2006, I believe. It is now edited by Joseph Grantham. It has its own monthly book club. For more on that, to sign up, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com and click on Book Club in the menu bar. Very pleased to be featuring Mike McGinnis today and his new novel, Drowning Practice, is beautifully written. It is hauntingly strange. It is an apocalypse novel. I guess that would be how you would categorize it. Though it is a book that lives in the space between genre and literary fiction and between different subgenres of genre fiction. It is a page turner and also a wistful, heartbroken, meditative investigation of human nature and love and loss and the fate of our species here on Earth. A great conversation with Mike McGinnis coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is made possible by Northwestern University Press and its new release, All Roads, 
a debut story collection by Colleen O'Brien. All Roads explores childhood trauma, addiction, and the reckless materialism of mainstream American culture. Relentlessly self-revealing, Colleen O'Brien's characters vacillate between vulnerability and self-protection, exposing the necessity of both. Listeners of this show receive a 20% discount on All Roads or any other title from Northwestern University Press simply by using the promo code PPL20. This offer is available at nupress.northwestern.edu. Again, that's nupress.northwestern.edu. Use the promo code PPL20 and get 20% off of your purchase. Okay, so quickly I'm going to say some thank yous to people who have pre-ordered my new novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is due out this May, on May 10th. Thank you to Lenore Douglas, Michelle Heiger, Emma Silverthorne, and Brooks Williams. I really appreciate it, you guys. Thank you for the kind support. If you are listening, if you are new, or if you just haven't had the chance to do so yet you can pre-order my book just go over to bradlisty.com it's all right there you can use whatever uh, online bookseller you most prefer and if you send me a screenshot of your proof of purchase i will send you a note in the mail along with an other people sticker how about that and i will give you a shout out here on the podcast in the monologue so if you want to send me this, the screenshot of your proof of purchase, you can email it to the show at letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. You can also DM the show on Twitter or on Instagram, and that will be sufficient. So otherwise, I have a bit of book news. I have scheduled my first event officially, my first book event. It is a virtual event on May 17th at Exile in Bookville, a great bookstore in Chicago. That is happening at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I will be in conversation with Leah Dietrich, a friend of mine and a past guest on this show, and the author of the excellent book Vanishing Twins. So Leah Dietrich and I in conversation on May 17th. This uh, event is hosted by Exile in Bookville, 8 p.m. Eastern, Details should be available at Exile and Bookville soon, and I will also share them here on the show as they solidify, etc., and you can find them soon enough on bradlisty.com as well. All right? So let us get to the main event today. My guest is Mike McGinnis. His debut novel, Fat Man and Little Boy, was published in 2014 by Black Balloon, His short fiction and essays have appeared in a variety of publications, including Hobart, Pank, Recommended Reading, The Collagist, Fanzine, American Book Review, Writer's Digest, and more. Mike McGinnis lives and works in Iowa City, one of our literary capitals. He also co-hosts the podcast Gift Horse with his partner, Tracy Ray Bowling. Mike McGinnis is now celebrating the publication of his latest novel, Drowning Practice, available from Echo Books, published to some pretty great acclaim just last week. It is the official March pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, and I'm delighted to shine a light on this one and to meet Mike and to hear about his life and his work. So here we go. Let's do it. This is my conversation 
with Mike McGinnis, and his new novel, One More Time, is called Drowning Practice. I wrote the first draft of this, was complete sometime in 2015, I believe, or late 2014, so before essentially any of the things that people tend to assume I was thinking about when I wrote this happened, right? Trump was a person who existed, but I was very confident that he would never be president, seemed seemed open and shut. I knew that there was such a thing as a pandemic. And I remember talking to people when I was in, in undergrad who explained to me why the odds were very strong we would have one fairly soon. But wait, I wasn't... wait, wait, wait. When was this? This like... would have been back in like 2005, 2006, depending. Okay. So it wasn't like a really prescient person knew it was coming anytime soon. It was just they knew that they do happen routinely and that we have a lot of different things right now, a lot of different you know conditions that increase the odds. So, I mean, it was a thing where I'd, I'd taken that conversation seriously enough where when it started happening, I did sort of immediately accept that it was real and that it was what it was in a way that I think a lot of folks didn't. When, I, when most people were thinking like, okay, we're going to spend two weeks in, in lockdown and then we're going to be free, I was preparing for, you know, 18 months. That was my immediate plan was I'm going to be in my basement for 18 months. So it was nice to have that little bit of warning, but these weren't the sort of things I was really worried about. I was freaking out because my partner had turned 30 uh, when I started writing this. And so in my head, I was 30, even though actually I'm a little bit more than a year younger than them. And I was like having these really bad sleepless nights where I was just terrified of death. And so that was the kind of thing that was really freaking me out. It was that and I was really struggling to write generally. I tried to write several different books before this one took and I was starting to feel like I was never going to finish one again. And that was really driving me up the wall. Wow. Yeah. And there is a book. I mean, there's writerly concerns embedded into the narrative of this book and I could feel you. And I think maybe this is the product of being a writer who's experienced similar trials before, but I could feel you as the writer having fun with Lyd's writerly situation because she is an author of some renown. You know, she had some promise and published three books, I think, uh, that were critically well-received, if not commercially successful. But then with the apocalypse looming as it is in your book and with other life circumstances sort of bearing down, she has kind of gone dark and has been unable to write. Yeah, and I, I did have a little – I had fun uh, adding in more jokes at my own expense as time went on. <laughs> so there are these little things here and there where I put in – at one point, I didn't know that you know how I was going to be published or who was going to buy it or whatever. And I remember putting in a joke about like the disappointment of going from hardback to paperback original, which is actually where my first book started was was paperback and, and how sad the, the protagonist was to now be coming out in this form that is seen as in some way less prestigious or like they're less likely to market you fully. And so – what I was kind of thinking when I put that in there was like, well, they'll probably do the same thing with my book again, and then this will be darkly funny. And I tried to anticipate some other things that might happen, and some of them did and some of them didn't like that. But um, just uh, just fun little things for me. 
Sure. And what about like, let's talk a little bit more about the struggle, because I think people listening love to hear those kinds of stories. <laughs> I love to hear those kinds of stories. I find them uh, like I find some solace in, you know, the uh, shared struggle or something. But you talked about five or six books that you had tried to write, none of which took. Yeah, as far as what led to them not taking, I think that I, I'm continually relearning the same lesson in my writing, which is that if I don't have a really strong relationship between two different characters at the core of a book, then it's going to be really hard for me to continue with it. It's going to be hard for me to invest in it because I I tend to think of a book as something that starts with one really strong, interesting character in an interesting situation. And my experience is that no matter how interesting that first character is, they aren't real to me until they have to exist in relationship with a second person. And so a lot of the books that I fail to write, because my, my standard process is I write like five or six things, I get to 10 or 20,000 words, and then I give up. It is, it is almost always the case that when I look back at it, I realize I didn't have two characters. I had one. So there was a version, there was a thing I tried to write, I think it was the, the first thing I tried to write after Fat Man and Little Boy, which was my first book, was about a, a town that was like, the population was 40 or 50% per capita, it was like, it was mostly spies, was the joke. And so it was going to be a whole book of just uh, the different characters betraying each other and revealing their their spy machinations and stuff, and I thought it was going to be really, you know, funny, and None of that worked at all. I didn't have two characters. I had a town in that case rather than a rather than a person. And but I did keep the sort of pothead weirdo spy father character in David in the the book that you read. I had another that was supposed to be sort of my okay, I'm going to do science fiction for real now because I'm always telling myself maybe this will be the the time that I do just straight genre fiction. And so I had a a book that I tried writing about a sort of a world ship. It was a living ship that was going to go to another planet. It was going to terraform that planet by giving birth to all the animals and plants and creatures and so forth that would sort of restore the earth. And it was from the perspective of her very devoted daughter. So the the daughter's name was Mott, and that's that much stayed around, right? And the idea of having a daughter who was very devoted to a mother character, that stuck around in this book too. Obviously, the uh, spaceship stuff, uh, not so much. So there were just little things like that. And I kept keeping little pieces as I found things that I cared about and enjoyed. But it wasn't until I had Lid and Mott talking to each other that I had a book. As I hear you talk, what I'm thinking back to is an interview that I just did with Kara Blue Adams not too long ago. I think that was the one. And I want to say she was relating to me some sort of writing instruction from Charles Baxter, though I could have this wrong. And it had to do with characters in counterpoint to one another, something along these lines, how that can be useful for fiction, where you have characters who work off of one another and who contrast one another nicely. Like this as a, as a way in seems to be wise advice. And that's certainly the case with Lid and Mott. You know, you have, though I think they do share some things in common, but certainly like stage of life will to live, <laughs> you know, attitudinally they're different and yet they, they very much need one another. Yeah. I re I do think that it is really good to start with a relationship that has a clear, 
it has clear dramatic stakes. I often like to start with a relationship where there's a, a power difference. So in my first book, Fat Man and Little Boy, um, that book was about the two atom bombs that we dropped on Japan, reincarnated as a fat man and a little boy, very literally. And uh, Little Boy was born first because that was the first one that was dropped. But uh, he looks like a kid. So their big dynamic was he was physically smaller. He was he was less powerful. He looked like a child of the people around them. But he was older. And so there was a sense in which he should be in charge. And Fat Man had had the inverse, right? And in practice, he was in charge. And really, they were they're were both babies because they they'd both just been born. But for me, beginning immediately with some some clear overlap, some things that the characters have in common that sort of put them on the same side, but then some distinctions that give them something to immediately argue about and be at odds with each other about is the fastest way to generate something that I know is going to be interesting to another human being. I'm always kind of amazed when somebody can write a book that is interesting without that sort of relationship at its core, because, you know, I don't exist on my own. And if I did, I wouldn't be very interesting to to read about. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. And I find too, as a reader and as a writer, but especially as a reader that when I'm reading characters arguing in dialogue, I'm always like, oh yeah, like this is, this makes it almost automatically interesting. And, you know, as you are talking about the struggles and the 20,000 word failed attempts to write books, but then finding things within them, even little things that end up in what becomes the final project. I think that's a useful lesson. You know, this is the way that it goes for most of us, most of the time. And I think that, you know, for reasons that probably are fairly obvious, it's inconvenient <laughs> to, con <laughs> to consider how much work you have to do just to get to where you have like a sense of your own bearings. I think we often expect the scale of the project and the scale of necessary failure to be smaller. We always wish that it were, right? Why do I have to write 80,000 words of garbage to get to the book? But that's the nature of it. Yeah. I, I always say that I wrote my first novel and sometimes people tease me because like there's a, there's a way in which this shouldn't count. But I like to say I wrote my first novel when I was like 15 or 16, because that was the first time I wrote a word document that had that many words. And of course, you know, you do that as a, as a maniacal teenager, because you think that that is the way into publishing. You think that, you know, I just need to to get going now and then obviously I'll be able to sell this and I'll be a genius. Everybody's going to love it and they'll be especially impressed that I did it so young. And of course, that that thing was crap. And then the next four were crap. I can't even remember anymore if Fat Man and Little Boy is my fifth or my sixth novel length manuscript that I wrote. But it's one of those. And. I knew as I was writing all of those things on some level after after the first time, I think I knew that all I was really doing was practicing and failing over and over and over again. And I knew that as soon as I finished with something, it was pretty much dead because nobody was ever going to see it. But I had to go through that. And I think you probably if you if you start doing that as young as I did, the Upside is you're doing it at a time when there are no market pressures and there are no time pressures and you can just go ahead and fail and nobody expects anything better. The other side of that is 
because the odds of me producing anything decent were so low. I did really, I failed a lot. You know, I just, there was, it was, it was hundreds and hundreds of hours of producing nothing worthwhile, which is a really, it's a challenging experience and it does haunt you later, even as you benefit from it, because it always feels like I could go back to that. It always feels like I could at any moment stop writing things that would be interesting or, or useful to other people. But I, the other side of that too, I think is um, like you mentioned, I, I brought stuff forward from, from the failed books and I'm, I'm sort of in that process again, where I've failed to write so many books over the last several years. It's been, it's been really grim and I'm finally, I think I found a combination of all the books that is something I actually want to write. And it, it's really important to both be willing to let those things die and to notice the one or two things that are worth keeping from those failed efforts that did sort of trick you in some ways into hanging out in a project that was otherwise kind of doomed. Like, yeah, those were the redeeming qualities that kept yeah. you there for six months of your life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And you have to not hate them. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you're, you're fairly – how old are you? Uh, 35. Okay. So you're young to be publishing. I mean, you know, in this game, that's the first novel published when you were how old? Uh, it would have been 27, somewhere in there. Okay. Yeah. So how did you know in those early years, like, was there a frame of reference that you had or some advice that you had gotten or teaching that you had received either in school or from a book you had read that sort of let you know, like, Hey, this is pretty typical it's typical to write five bad books and, and you know, what kept you going? I think the thing that kept me going and I was conscious of this as I was, was doing it was I would go ahead and pretend as I was working on a book that it might be the one, right? It was always, maybe this next one is the one that's going to work out. And then as soon as I was done with it and I did whatever kind of submission I was going to try with it, which was usually like one or two, uh, then I would I would be able to let go and get excited about the next thing. And they, I mean, you grow so quickly at that age in some regards that you by the end of a project, you would see a lot of the things that were disastrous about it. But I think I also so I was homeschooled up until college. I, I never went to any kind of public or private school. It was just me at home studying whatever I wanted to with some guidance from my parents. And Part of, part of that, too, is I just had nothing else to do with my time at all. <laughs> like, my life was was pretty empty, in all honesty. And, like, you know, my books were my friends. And then I went to undergrad, and people did clue me in there. Because I think I came in with the attitude. I knew it was unusual to have written, as I had by that point, two or three novel-length things. And so I kind of walked in there like I was hot shit, and I wanted people to be impressed by me. And to some extent, I was hot shit, and people were impressed by me, right? Because, like... That was uncommon, but it became clear to me very quickly that like, no, you're not, none of this is going to work. You know, maybe by the time you're done here, you'll put together one or two things because I, I was fortunate to have teachers that were very honest with me about what I should expect to be getting out of myself at that point. When, where did you go to undergrad? I went to Butler University. Oh, yeah. I was taught by, uh. Let's see. I won't. I won't remember to name everybody. Certainly, but Robert Stapleton, uh, Susan Neville, Dan Barden were three of my my main creative writing instructors, specifically. Butler University in Indianapolis. Yep. My former hometown. Oh yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I went. Known that. I went to high school in uh, Carmel. 
Oh yeah. Years sure. ago. Years ago. It's been a long time, but yeah, that's where I lived from 86 to 93. 86, the year I was born. Uh huh. <laughs> so I'm a little longer in the tooth, but yeah. You you were homeschooled? I mean, this is, I, I have to ask it because yeah. that's a rare experience. And uh, how did that work? I always wonder about this. Like, how do you get, uh, like, you seem like you got a proper education. Uh, I mean, I didn't, to be honest. Like, I there's huge holes. Um, so, I mean, it's really different for everybody. And it's different from state to state. And, like, laws change. So when I was a kid in Indiana, I, did, I don't know if this is still true. You literally didn't have to tell the state that you were even homeschooling. You didn't even have to tell them, I'm not sending my kid to school. There were no requirements for particular subjects or content that I needed to learn. There wasn't anything that my parents had to do other than not be caught abusing me or whatever, right? That was the standard. And so as a result, I... I mean, there are a lot of different approaches to that, right? A lot of the people that I knew, most of the people that I knew, the reason that they were homeschooled was that their parents wanted to protect them from secular culture. They wanted to to keep them, uh, you know, walking with God, and they they wanted to avoid them having contact with things like rap, you know. Now, in my, because that was how they saw it, they sure. saw that as as the the opposition. In a, in a way that was, you know, it's, it's really troubling to look back on. It was troubling then. My parents were not quite so conservative in that regard. It wasn't mainly to keep me Christian, although I think it did start there. But as a result, they would often have like sort of, you know, parallel Christian provided structures. And those pretty early on, I tried going to some things and they, they never worked out for me. So ultimately, I was always the way that I studied was essentially what is called unschooling. I don't know if you've heard this sure. term before. Yeah. So like no, no guidance whatsoever in many regards. Right. Like past the third grade, I was choosing essentially everything I read. I was teaching myself from the books. I would go to the library. I would go to the bookstore. I'd be like, this is the history book that I'm reading this year. And then I would I would read at least part of that history book. But you know, as a result, I didn't know anything about chemistry, right? I I was really bad at math. I was, I, I never really opened the physics textbook that my, my mom got me. And then when I was doing my applications for undergrad, we had to do um, transcripts. And so she opened Microsoft Word and I told her what grades to give me in the different subjects. And I tried to be realistic, but some of them were a little bit more like, if I had paid attention in chemistry, if I had actually read that book, I bet I would have got a C. Because that would have been the most I could manage. Like projected grades. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I, I had a, I had a SAT score, so the colleges that I applied to weren't flying totally blind. And in Indiana, this is, this is known, right? Like the people who do college admissions, they understand what they're signing up for. And they know that when you roll the dice with a homeschool kid, you like one fifth of the time or whatever, they completely flame out. They They get there and they have no idea what they're doing. And then a couple more will muddle through. And then sometimes they'll they'll be really lucky and they'll be glad that they that they brought that person on board. I didn't flame out. I don't know where in that in that whole structure I would be. But I can tell you that my first semester was by far my worst because I just didn't know to do homework like I knew intellectually, but I'd never done homework. So I just wouldn't do it. I'd show up to class and I'd be like, oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there are some expectations here. <laughs> Where where in Indiana are you from? 
So I grew up in Indianapolis. I spent almost all of my time. I don't know if you ever, I don't know why you would have been to the Arthur Jordan YMCA, but it's near North Central High School, which some some folks will know that. Sure, um, yeah, that's that that's that that's our old arch rival high school. That's not yeah. far from where I grew up. That's like that's right. Twenty minutes from my house. So yeah, I spent like all of my time there because my parents couldn't afford to pay for you know other kinds of care, and my mom was working there all the time. Uh, she ran their childcare for a long time, and then later she did some some other things like that, and so. My entire social life was whatever was going on at the Arthur Jordan YMCA and whatever I could walk to in the immediate surrounding area. So there was a Target that loomed large for me. There was a, <laughs> I think it was a Barnes and Noble, and there was a Schlotsky's Deli that was that was pretty big in my world. And there was a library within walking distance as well, which was the the hugest thing. That's I had my first kiss behind that library. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's fun to, it's nice to hear you talk about this because I have conversations with friends of mine in Los Angeles or people I know who grew up in like New York city or something. And they're telling me about their adolescence or their ski trips or their, I'm like, dude, you got to realize what it's like in the Midwest. Like we, <laughs> we, we, we hang out in target and it's like, the, yes. and it's like a big deal. <laughs> yes. No, I remember for, uh, First girl I, I dated for any reasonable amount of time, multiple dates that were just us walking around in the Walmart that was about, you know, 20 minutes drive from my house. And sure. that was what we did. Yeah. Walmart. I mean, it's big. It's fluorescently lit. What more do you want <laughs> <laughs> for a romantic environment? People are so needy. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. But uh, I want to get back to talking about knowing when a project is working and knowing when it's not. We've kind of covered the knowing when it's not. But I want to hear your experience of having things click into place for drowning practice and getting to a stage of the process where you were like, okay, like I've got something here. I think the first time that I knew it might work and I was very skeptical until very late in the game because I'd had so many failures recently. And I was, I was struggling with some unbelievably intense, uh, depression. But I think the first time that I felt good about it was actually pretty early when uh, there's a scene where 
Uh, Mott comes home to the apartment where Lyd has, she hasn't left it in the last three years. And they just have a nice little evening together after school. You know, they, they share a meal, they talk about homework, and they, you know, talk about some things that are coming up. And it was the thing that felt good to me, the thing that made me feel like I might have something was that I loved the characters and they cared about each other. And that's one of those things that I can rearrange everything else around that as long as the characters care about each other, as long as I care about the characters. Um, and I think I, I love them more than I, I really loved anybody I've ever written about because of how much they care about each other. So that was the thing that initially clued me in that, okay, this could work because that relationship was strong enough for me to mean that I could just, I could just keep chipping away at everything else until it, it felt good too. I think that the larger theme that told me that I had something and that this is usually what happens is there comes a point where instead of forcing myself to come up with sentences and, and pushing myself to, to move the ball forward a little bit, I am instead thinking about the future of the project. In other words, like events in the story that haven't happened yet when I'm just walking around downtown. So it might be, that the the first time I knew the book was going to work was uh, one time when I was walking around with my my partner Tracy and I had an idea about the ending and how it might work. You know, I felt like really invested in the idea of trying to make it work. So rather than just trying to survive the process of being at the desk and and doing a day's work on the manuscript, I'm instead living in the world and my brain is doing the uh, the calculations and it's trying things out, whether I'm thinking about it or not. I think that's when I know that I'll at least get to the end of something. Now, whether uh, I've gotten to the ends of things that people haven't read even after, uh, you know, Fat Man and Little Boy, right? There's a, a dead book or two in there. This is very much a book that keeps you guessing to the end. It's a hard one to figure and predict as you're reading. Like sometimes you can sort of, uh, you know, you can guess pretty easily, but this is a book that I was thinking about it creatively. Like, Oh wow. He gave himself a pretty tall, tall order here to try to resolve this one. So I can imagine how you would play around with the ideas about how it would end early in the process so that you could sustain the, the energy to keep going, you know, otherwise I think it could get overwhelming No. Yeah, it's I mean, I think any novel that you try to write because it is such a long project and you definitely at least I can't I can't imagine the whole thing in advance. I can't have the I can't really have the book in my head. I just have to find it by writing it. So there's definitely a you're doing a trust fall with yourself, right? You're sort of saying I know based on my experience that if I give myself these resources and I throw myself off this cliff. I'll be able to build the device that can catch me or, you know, the, the paraglider that can carry me away from the, the ground at the last moment. And so I had no idea how this book was going to end for like the first third of my writing of it. And as, as you say, with this book in particular, where the world is, is supposed to end at the end of the book, I really needed to know how it was going to end. <laughs> um, you know, so it was, yeah, there was a, a long period of like, man, I, I sure don't envy future me who has to handle this. Sure. And, and you talk too about writing through a pretty 
difficult depression. Was the depression directly related to the struggles with the writing or was it more generalized than that? I think it was a lot of things. I think it was, you know, I think like, like anybody, I, you know, I don't know the science, but I tend to think that I probably just have a chemical problem to some extent, right? Like, I don't know if it's always been the case or if something flew out of whack at some point and then I didn't know how to write it. Like when you, you know, change over to like, now I'm diabetic, right? Like, I don't know if it's that, right? but there was, there was definitely a moment in my middle twenties where I started just not enjoying things as much. And my, my partner noted it to me explicitly relatively early on in the process. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm enjoying things as much as I ever did. And like, it took me a long time to appreciate that. No, like I, I had pretty seriously flattened affect and to, to an extent, I think I still do to an extent. I think that's just me, but I was just not able to engage with or care about things in the way that I should there was also the fear of or mortality that I've already talked about. That was something that was becoming really pressing for me. And I, I think a really predictable way, right? Like you, you move toward your third decade, your fourth decade, your fifth decade, whenever you decide it's time to freak out about death. That was apparently when I decided it was time for me. And then there were also some some family things going on that, you know, I, I don't talk about publicly, but that have been tremendous sources of of stress over the years and have I've I've had to go to counseling. So the the failed writing thing I think is one of those things where if everything else is going okay it feels like it's part of the process. You know, I just talked about how for several years now I've been kind of anxious about the fact that like after I finished this and you know we went out in submission with it and everything I was I was having trouble getting to the next project. I think I'm on the next project now. But because things are a little bit better for me personally, if not necessarily for the world, I've been okay with letting that process play out. Whereas at the time, it was just one more thing that I, I couldn't deal with. And I really, I looked to my work for a sense of stability and self-worth, and I wasn't, I wasn't able to get that from it. So yeah, it was, it, it was, a, it was a rough combination there for a few years. It's such a nice thing to be in a project where you have a sense of an ending and you know where it's going. It's not to say that the work is easy, but you're in it and you can rely on it daily. You go to it, you chip away at it. You have that sense of satisfaction and forward progress. It is also miserable (laughs) (laughs) to be adrift at sea and to be working on a project that feels directionless or doomed or something, or to just have that lost feeling or, or just to be sitting there inert, not knowing what to do. I know from experience, like that's a bad place for a writer to be, but it's kind of a necessary place. I think you have to work through those moments and get to, you know, where, you know, you eventually go, you have to be willing to endure it. I want to dig in a little bit deeper on this fear of death. Yeah. Uh, which I think it's it's nice to hear you say that openly. Can you just explain a little bit more what the situation was for you psychologically around it? Like just fear of the void, fear of just complete annihilation, I would imagine is probably somewhere in there. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge part of it. It's It's funny because it was actually, I was sort of death obsessed as a kid, 
but I found it kind of a productive thing. It was sort of a source of strength for me, the way that, that I thought about it, because I found it really clarifying, right? So, like, the thing that happens in the book where Mott decides, you know, when, when Lyd asks her, like, what do you want to make sure you do before you die? And her answer is, I want to write a book. Like, that's just me talking about my life, right? Like, that's a conversation that I had with myself early on and that I continue having with myself periodically. Like, what do you want to make sure you do? And the answer... Uh, mysteriously continues to be write another book. Strange choice, but right. it's uh, <laughs> right. for I what it's worth. I can't think of what else to do. That's the best exactly. I can. That's the best I can come up with. Exactly. That's the thing. Is like it seems like there's got to be something better, and yet if there is, I have not found it. There's there's nothing that feels better to me to do, and there's nothing I feel more equipped to do. Perhaps more importantly. Um, so like for a long time, it was it was really helpful for me to think about that and to ask myself that question and then to, to spend my time accordingly. And that's still something that can work for me now. But what, it started to get real, right? It's easy to say that to yourself when you're a teenager, like, oh, I'm going to die someday. So therefore, I should do this cool thing now. But you don't really like believe it. It's so far away. And it's not like it was all that close, probably. Oh, know? I was going to say, you were pretty, I mean, you're having this existential crisis in your 20s, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, it's too soon. But like, part of that, I think, is that I had done, I've rushed directly into middle age in a lot of ways, right? Like, I went straight from undergrad to graduate school. I met my partner in undergrad. We got married while I was in graduate school. As soon as we got out of there, they found a job that stuck for a, a long time and seemed like a, a nice, stable employment situation. My employment was less stable, but by by the time I was really freaking out, I kind of had what looked like a professional arc in front of me, too. We bought a house. Like, all the life stages that I expected to happen to me ever, because I don't plan to have children, they've happened. And so I think that my brain started rushing to what's the next thing. I think partly because like that's the form that my depression and anxiety take is I continually forecast the future and my forecasts are always negative, right? I always expect to run out of money. I always expect that my home, if there's any small problem with my home, I assume that it's going to collapse. It's going to be knocked over. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but <laughs> no, I mean, what can you do? What can you do but laugh, right? Like this is, and so like it was it was it was a, a weird and I think fundamentally silly time. And I get kind of defensive about it, like talking about the fact that I was like 29 and I'm like, I'm going to die. <laughs> but, <laughs> but like that was that was where I that was where I was. That was how it felt like things were going was that was just sort of the next thing on the docket. And so that fear of non-existence is really bad. I also have a lot of fear about the moment where. I find out that I'm going to die and I find out what I did wrong that is going to kill me. Right. Because I expect it to be, I'm a, I'm a reasonably comfortable, secure person. It'll probably be some kind of cancer that I can attribute to a lifestyle decision or something like that. And it really scared the shit out of me. And it still does. Yeah. You don't want to like be the cause of your own demise especially if it's like premature you know something totally controllable where you really yeah. overdid it but so much of it ultimately is just luck of the draw because i mean look at keith richards that dude's still going i know he's like the po person people always point to like who fucking knows what like what's gonna there's no guarantee you know i i think that for me it's less about 
wanting to secure some sort of outcome, which I know isn't even possible and more to just like play the odds and to feel as good as I can while I'm here. Understanding that like tomorrow it could be over, you know, who knows? Rationally, I, I sort of, I'm pretty good about planning to just sort of maximize the, the enjoyment I can get out of life. And so I, I take pretty good care of myself too, as much as I can these days. I didn't, I wasn't always great at it, but the plan is to just have the, the longest, healthiest life possible. But meanwhile, I do expect to just die in a car crash <laughs> soon. <laughs> you know, if, I, if I had to guess what's going to happen, I'd say car crash at 40. Well, but listen, you bring up something interesting because I have this argument all the time. Cars are crazy. Yes. Like we worry about like asteroids hitting the planet. We worry about getting eaten by a shark. What we should really be worried about is being in a metal box going 90 miles an hour, like three feet from another metal box going 90 miles an hour. Like this is, in, you know, this is inherently dangerous to a degree that I don't think we fully appreciate because it's part of our everyday, but we need to get rid of cars. That's my, <laughs> that's my position. Yeah, no, I do appreciate it. I am terrified every second I'm in a car. I hate it. And I'm, as a result, I'm the world's most cautious, slowest driver because I remember when I was a kid, I had this moment. I saw Star Trek next, or it was called Star Trek Generations. That's the one where, spoiler for a very old movie, uh, Kirk dies for real. And he, he says something about how he always knew he would die alone. And I think not long after I, I saw that I was riding around in a car downtown that my, my parents were driving somewhere, and I had the very Captain Kirk thought, I am going to die in a car. And for years, I was just very confident that that was how it was going to go for me. And I now rationally understand that there's no knowing that, but there's a part of me that has that same Captain Kirk idiocy where I'm like, that's, that's definitely it for me. It that's is written, absolutely what it's going to be. It is written in the stars. Uh -huh. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, your book and like, it's kind of high concept idea, which I think is pretty wonderful because there's a lot of different angles you can take when it comes to writing a, an apocalypse novel, a book that, you know, deals with like the end capital T capital E and in your novel, it begins, the process of the end begins with a shared dream. And when I say a shared dream, I mean, basically all of humanity has the exact same dream. And that's kind of a, a brilliant idea. Can you talk a little bit about how that came to you and maybe just describe it a little bit more for listeners? Yeah. So in the, in the book, we begin in, I think it's like March or April. So it's it's been a few months that they've known this because they had the dream in January that uh, the world was going to end. And everybody had a very similar, not identical dream that that told them that this was going to happen. And the uh, the entity in the dream that's that's letting them know is very apologetic, says, you know, it's it's not any particular person's fault. It's just what we're doing now. Sorry. And they know that it's going to happen in November. Everybody just sort of naturally assumes November 1st. And the way that I came to this was that I wanted to write the, the, the original premise of the book as stated to my partner in the basement as I tried desperately to make up anything that I would feel good writing about because I'd had so many failed books. I said something like, what if there was a 13-year-old girl who wanted to write a book before she died? 
because her mom was a writer and she wanted to be like her mom. And so for me, that was the premise. And then I had to come up with the reason that the that the little girl would know that she was going to die, that she would know the world was going to end. And I realized I wanted to inhabit that space of knowing it was coming for for most of the book, that that was what the mood was going to be. And so I asked myself, well, how would they know that? And like, you can do the the movie thing of, okay, well, there's an asteroid that's going to hit and we all know it. And so we're all going to prepare. And there have been movies like that, right? I'm sure there's been books like that as well. But that didn't have... That didn't have the feeling I wanted because then it's about like really the book should be about the logistics of trying to save everyone from the asteroid, right? So it needed to be something strange, something that couldn't be avoided. And so I settled on the idea of everyone having a dream that just told them because that means that there's nothing they can do about it. And indeed, it's not clear that they should do anything about it or what it would look like to try, right? Which was also – you know, there's obvious convenient parallels there between things like climate change and, and stuff that's happened since that I I was, of course, thinking about as I was writing it. But that was that was where that decision originally came from, was just that I wanted that mood that I was I was feeling in my life. And I wanted a way to bring readers into that. Yeah, no. And I, I mean, there's a there's a figure who shows up in the dream who kind of explains and I, there's something greatly cinematic about it. And it has that wonderful kind of strange quality that a good sci-fi movie or horror movie often has, you know, just kind of like a, almost like David Lynchian quality, you know, where uh, you feel a sense of like magic and menace at maybe the same time. Yeah. And I think too, that it's just a great idea as a way to kind of bring the reader into this set of circumstances. And I think as well, you do a really wonderful job of imagining the human toll that this kind of knowledge would take on people's behavior, just the way that people respond and they respond differently. Not everybody just goes into a funk and curls up into a ball and, you know, starts drinking whiskey, though many do, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, some people commit suicide, some people, you know, start to kind of go feral. Uh, a lot of people are depressed in different ways and kind of give up other people. Just like you say, like most people just go to work, right? You try to describe like the kind of broad human spectrum of responses. And what was that like? You know, you start to put yourself into that headspace. Like how would people respond? if we knew the clock was ticking and there were like six months to go for all of us. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where, and this was, this has become more true since, right? I already sort of knew the answer to the question of what would everybody do if they knew they were going to die? Because it's what we're doing right now, right? Like whatever we're doing, that's what we would do. <laughs> and like, obviously there's a, there's a heightening of the drama inherent in giving it a, a deadline and, and, a specific time. But the truth is that even if it were six months, you know, I, I contrive to give the main characters some cash so that they don't have to do their jobs just to get by for the, the whole book. But most people would need to do that. And so to me, it just seemed like this is, of course, we would all just kind of go about our, our normal routines to an extent. And then the pandemic happened. And I was like, upsettingly right about that. I was so horrified 
by how much it is the case that most people not only did the same things they had been doing for their entire lives up to that point, but the, it made them furious to consider any other arrangements in many cases, right? Like we could have done anything about this. And what we chose to do was almost nothing. Right. <laughs> and it's, and it's so, it's so hard to see that. I didn't, I didn't come to this cynically, but I did recognize it as I was, as I was doing the writing years ago, when I was in grad school and I went to I went to an AWP conference and there was a presentation that somebody did. He said he had figured out the formula. And I'm sorry, I don't remember who this this author was, so I can't give him credit. But he he said he had figured out the formula for commercial success, which is you need to write a book club book. And the way that you do that is you write a book that is based around a question that the book club members can ask each other and discuss. And if you've got that, you're set. And so I didn't intentionally, I didn't set out to to write that. In fact, it took me years to realize that's what I had done. But it does naturally by saying, okay, everybody in the world is dealing with this problem at the same time. And everybody has to decide how they're going to live their last few months. I realized I did have a book club question eventually there, right? Which is what would you do if you knew the world was going to end in November? And so very late in the process, actually, I had the characters explicitly say that to each other. I wondered why it hadn't occurred to me before to have them ask that question. <laughs> right. Because right. I remember that, comp- that, uh, that presentation from that guy. And I was like, you know what? Actually, that does make sense. That seems like a good idea. I should do that. Yeah. I wonder what I would do. I think like maybe I would, I think I would just like sit around with my family. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know if I would do anything like grandiose, you know, I don't know if I would like go on a big trip or would I just want to relax as much as possible with the people I care about? Wait and see. It's hard to know. It's hard to know how one would behave, you know, but I like to think that I would be sort of stoic about it. I'd just be rolling around on the ground crying, <laughs> <laughs> just clutching my various pets. Uh, yeah. <laughs> asking my partner to make it all better. Well, you know, it brings to mind questions about what we're doing as a species and what the outcomes are going to be in the kind of near term and the long term. You know, I don't know how how long, but I have in the past read assessments of where we're headed with regard to climate if we don't change radically and soon. And it's truly terrifying. Like it freezes me in ways that few things do. And then there's also a part of me that will then set it down because I just can't tolerate the darkness. And I will see like a tweet or I'll read something else in passing about how like, we're going to figure this out. Like we're going to geoengineer some shit and like, you know, or we're going to get to, we're going to find another earth and we're going to get there and we're going to figure out space travel or, you know, whatever we have to believe to give ourselves hope. We're going to desalinate, you know, the ocean easily. And like, where do you stand on the actual end of the world like do you feel a sense of like yeah we're we've got like a couple hundred years left at best or so there's two things that i i know one about myself and one about the world the thing i know about myself is that as i i've said i have sort of a diseased mind right and the form that my disease takes is when i think about the future I imagine the worst plausible future that I can, or even an implausibly bad one. So at any given moment, if I ask myself to project forward from current trends, I always see 
horror and disaster for for everyone, myself included. And this is hard to reconcile with the fact that I have had an extremely blessed, charmed life. You know, in, like in a way that you're currently catching me at maybe the apex of it, right? Like this book coming out in the way that it is with like significant support behind it and and beginning to maybe find an audience. And it's it's got this great cover and people are being very kind like you are and talking to me about it and everything. Like it might never get better than this, truly. And I, I expected when I was a kid to work at the Walmart where I, you know, dated people and die in a ditch. That was my prediction. <laughs> so like, so like, I know that I am not equipped to make these assessments. I also know the thing I know about the world is that everyone has believed that the world was going to end for as long as there has been anyone to have that thought. Right. So like what that says to me is that's probably not true. On the other hand, what does the world ending actually mean? There's there's two versions of it, right? There's one where like all of us are just gone. We just vanish. And so there's no one to experience the, the end anymore. And I think that's fine. I think if we all disappeared tomorrow, no harm, no foul. The bad one is when there are some of us still around to experience what is happening around us and suffer through it and have to for lack of a better idea, come up with a, a way to keep going. And that's sort of what we're experiencing now, right? So like my feeling is to some extent, the world is always ending. And thinking about the future where the world really ends real good, you know, where the, where the, where the, the gods stop messing around and they really take care of us. That's a, that's a psychological refuge for people in a way that I think is a little bit unhelpful. Um, we get excited about the catharsis of it. And I, I don't think that we should. So like the to to finally get around to really answering your question, I don't think about this at all, except when I'm writing fiction, if I can help it. I mean, I think about it constantly because I have a problem. But when I have control over things, I just don't draw conclusions about this because, you know, there's the research that describes exactly the experience that you're describing, where if you tell people how bad it might be, they shut down, which means everything is going to be worse. So. I don't punish myself by thinking about how bad climate change is going to be. I don't read those things because they don't help me do anything different. I only want to read things that help me do something different that help. And I also want to count on other people who have the skills and the know-how necessary to, to work on solutions. And so I need them not to feel doomed either. So I do feel doomed, but I, I try and trick myself out of it so I can maybe contribute to a solution. Yeah, I agree. You have to. I mean, like it, you know, like complete paralysis is not an option, or at least at least not a good option, especially yeah. if you care about the future. Like I, I think about my kids. Like I just, you know, I don't have the option to just be like, "Well, we're fucked," you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I think on the gloomier side of things, you talk about wanting to be proactive and to be able to do things. I think about my own behavior consumptively. You know, uh, I probably. I, I run my air conditioner, you know, in the summer sometimes, and that's maybe not a good idea, but we don't do these things. It just seems to me oftentimes when we are, you know, confronted with crises that require of us maybe some sacrifice, it can be disheartening to me how little we actually do, myself included, you know, like it's, it's hard to reconcile with it all because i know you can't be too hard on yourself 
sometimes it's a hundred degrees and you've got, you've got the air conditioner sitting there. It's pretty tempting. you know. Yeah. There's definitely things that I can name off the top of my head that I could be doing less of, or I could be doing differently that would contribute in a, you know, it, it wouldn't really matter, but it's a bit of cowardice on my part to pretend that my belief that it doesn't matter is, is part of the problem. And I had a moment there just now. I was like, I should, I should hijack this whole thing and I should publicly declare that I'm going to make some huge change just to, just, you know, on the principle that that's um, what we should be doing with our lives, right? Is we should be making these changes. I should go vegetarian or something like my partner is. They're fine. But I'm not going to do that to you and I'm I'm not going to do that to myself. (laughs) Yeah, Um, you don't want to go on the record in a public forum like this. Exactly. But when I want to think well of people in this regard, the thing that I, I try to remind myself, which I, I do believe, is that we simply weren't made for this. We weren't made for these circumstances. What we should be doing in terms of like what we have the biological cognitive capacity generally to handle is we should be living in a village of about 200 people because that's the number of like faces and names the average person is able to retain right and we should have personal connections and investments in those people and we should not have the resources necessary to destroy the planet because we're not capable of handling them very obviously we do have those things i think i think in a very real way they have us right i tend to think of the sort of super organism that produces the desire in me for kinds of security and comfort that would have been unimaginable a few hundred years ago. I I tend to think that it has me at least as much as I have it. And I do think that it would be best if we all found the capacity inside ourselves to do the things that we need to do to improve things. But when I want to be gentle with myself and I want to be gentle with other people, I do remind myself like these things are at least as addictive as a number of things I would not judge the average person for not being able to kick once they got started. So it is it is embarrassing and frustrating. But I think like that example of the lack of, of personal sacrifice, I think so much of that comes from like people don't want to wear masks, not because they hate the physical experience of wearing the mask. I don't think it's not that unpleasant. It just isn't for, for most people. No, um, they don't want to do it because they don't feel that they are in community with the people who are asking them to do it. They they don't feel that the that the liberals in their neighborhood are in their neighborhood or that they should have to care about those people. And I get it. I don't feel particularly in community with them either. Yeah, I just feel like it shouldn't even be political though. It's just yeah. a public health issue, you know? It's it shouldn't. And it didn't have to be. That's the other thing that is so sad about that particular example, right, is there was a decision to engineer that. It wasn't initially a marker of identity, and it became one because some folks wanted it to be. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just feel like hopefully someday cooler heads will prevail and we will care more about one another. But, you know, your book posits, and I won't talk too much about, you know, uh, too much about this, but your book posits something that you've kind of been – talking about just now, which is that we're not wired for this. Like maybe the species (laughs) as presently constituted just doesn't have the stuff. We've gotten to a place in our evolution where things have tipped out of balance and we've lost the, the thread. You know, we have the resources to destroy ourselves, both in terms of, you know, the ways in which technology is fueling 
uh, the climate catastrophe. We have nuclear weapons, which can obviously wipe out all life on the planet in an hour. And it's too much for human beings to handle. Even at our best, we can't, we probably collectively can't do it. Like part of me is persuaded that this is true, but I think then there's the other part of me that's like, but no, we have to find a way, <laughs> you know, like it's that back and forth. Yeah. No, I mean, it's one of those things where I think it, I think it is true, but I think that keeping in mind that it is true is only helpful to me to the extent that it helps me be merciful and generous with other people. And it helps me understand why they don't want to come along on some of the, you know, projects that would maybe save us. And then it's unhelpful when it's an excuse for me to be too merciful to myself, right? I need a little bit of help being a little bit merciful with myself, but I don't need all the help all the time. And so I, that balance for me is important. I, I tend to be very utilitarian with these sorts of things, right? Like I do think it's probably on, uh, like I, I'd say the odds are that that's right, but I try not to believe it any more than it's useful to me and the people around me to believe it or anything else I believe. I want to talk uh, as well about something like as a reader that was very satisfying to me. And that is Kurt Vonnegut. Because I was early on in your novel when I sensed him in it. I was like, oh, like something. And I, I wish I would have highlighted it so that I could re recite the phrase to you. But it was like the, there was a way that you have in the book of occasionally assessing like human conundrums, like broad human conundrums, like diagnoses almost that felt very like Vonnegutian, if that's the word. And I just, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like an intuitive understanding, just having read a lot of his work. And now the fact that you're from Indiana, as am I, uh, you know, makes it make more sense. But then Vonnegut himself or his work appears late in your book, which felt like a confirmation. Am I correct in understanding that Vonnegut and his work were a big deal for you at some point in your life, if not now? Absolutely. You know, it's it actually has been a little while since I spent a lot of time reading it, but that's partly because I... Uh... You know, being homeschooled and doing so much of my reading and exploration on my own, it was pretty rare for a while. Like my hit rate was real bad in my reading, right? Like it was it was really uncommon for me to read a great book. And so I would read one and I would get so excited because I just wasn't using the guidance that was out there to help me find them. So at some point as in high school, I found Vonnegut. I don't remember which book was first. And then I read most of what he had written. Until I got to a point where I realized if I didn't stop, there would be nothing left for me to look forward to. And so I slowed down considerably after that. I think it was I read something John Irving said. I was on a similar kick with him at the time. I'm not as in love with his work now, but um, his work at the time really spoke to me. And he said something about there's a Charles Dickens book he hasn't read because he's saving it for his deathbed. And so I, <laughs> I had a similar situation with Vonnegut where I was like, I'm going to save some of this. But he... He was the writer that I absolutely patterned myself after the most consciously before just about anybody else. I think that's common for, you know, uh, white men. <laughs> like that's He's definitely a, a lot of us end up finding that template. But no, you're, ex you're exactly right. I learned to write good sentences by imitating his sentences until I forgot I was imitating his sentences. And I learned to think most of my decent thoughts that are nice to people 
by reading his decent thoughts that were nice to people. That was where I learned a lot of like how to be generous to the extent that I know. And I actually, I have a heartbreaking story about him that was, is, is really hard for me. So I mentioned I went to Butler University and he was going to come speak at their, their writer series. And I guess it would have been my last year there. I think this must have been fall of 2007. Uh-huh. We could know this because, because he died. It's whenever he died is right. when he was supposed to speak. And so before, when we knew that he was coming, I was, I was told by, by someone there, hey, we'd like you to introduce him. Because that was something that we did with the writers, the visiting writers series there, right? As a student would be chosen or a couple students would be chosen to, to introduce the, the speaker. And I was, I was the most excited I've ever been about anything, basically, about the fact that he was coming and that I would... I, I pretty quickly decided that they had forgotten the idea of me introducing him. I don't think that they were going to do that, but I do think I would have definitely gotten to meet him. And then, and then he died. And of course that was a great tragedy for any number of people, but it was also specifically a tragedy for me uh. because I wanted so badly to meet him and I was so excited. And, you know, later his son, Mark came and read something that he suspected uh, Vonnegut had written knowing that he was not himself going to perform it. And it did, it did kind of feel that way. And um, they put that together with, there's like a musical performance of a portion of Slaughterhouse Five that describes the war happening in reverse. And so I, it's a, it's a really interesting musical performance. It's a really beautiful piece. And so between all of those things, that night is one of the most annihilated I have ever been. <laughs> like, that is, that is the most, just some of the most I have ever felt in one day. Yeah. And I think the fact that he was local, just a local, local guy who often said that, you know, when he found his voice as a writer, he was talking like who he was, which is a guy from Indianapolis. And, you know, your book was reminiscent of Vonnegut in like small notes. Like I would, I would feel his lines in your lines in these kind of like brief flashes but your voice is your own and the prose style is different than his. And I'm wondering if you feel similarly, did you have a similar process of getting to where you felt comfortable on the page and kind of sort of found your voice or whatever? And do you have a sense that like, well, yeah, this is me talking like who I am, a guy from Indiana. So I I grew up fairly poor. And it was an interesting experience going through, you know, like graduate school and, you know, workshopping stories that were reflective of the experience, like the way that I had grown up. And people would say, well, that's implausible because that's that's gross. And I'd be like, well, that, you know, that was I don't know what to tell you. That was my life. Um, (laughs) And like, I don't I don't walk around with like a huge chip on my shoulder about it because I I feel like it's fairly common that people have that experience and like the only reason the only reason it feels strange to to write about being poor or to regions like you know to write like a midwesterner is that publishing is so counterproductively new york dominated in its culture right but i think also i had to get comfortable with talking like myself in ways that are are not particularly of my region or, you know, associated with my background. Like for me, there's a, there's a fundamental like fussiness to my prose that I really had to 
work to embrace. I had to I had to get over the fact that I'm the sort of person who really prefers not to end a sentence with a preposition, despite the fact that no one ever told me not to do that. Like it just it's uh, it still bothers me. So I think like there was a process of learning how to write simply and directly in imitation of Vonnegut. And then there was a process of accepting to some extent, I am a kind of persnickety weirdo who has his own hangups and his own things that he wants out of his, out of his prose. Okay. So we haven't gotten to this yet and and we must before I let you go. And I wanted that is to talk about the strangeness of your novel and the world that it creates and the, the cast of characters that you've created. You have Lyd and Mott who are a really wonderful mother daughter pair with all this love between them, not an entirely simple relationship, but very easy to sort of fall in love with these characters and to worry about them and care about their fates. Uh, and then you have a father character who takes things into a more science fictiony realm for me and a dystopian realm. And I'd love to hear you talk about him and talk about that storyline and those decisions and how they came to you as you built the world of your novel and built, you know, built the narrative uh, that carries us to the end, which of course I'm not going to spoil. So it's always been a challenge for me to categorize my fiction. And, you know, it's, it gets easier once you, you start publishing because people start thinking like, oh, OK, this is a thing that that we can publish here. But um, like the I've I've always sort of existed between genres and I've always that's that's where I'm happiest and where I'm most comfortable and I think that the reason for me is the strangeness that you mentioned is that I feel that the world is a deeply weird, fucked up, confusing place. And for me, the way that we structure a fiction so that it reads as realist involves eliding much of the reality of the world for me, right? Like it's... It, it's it's an oversimplification to say that literary fiction is as a genre white and middle class it isn't but it does have those tendencies and it was hard for me when i wrote straight literary fiction to talk about the like weird hard complicated things about about my life and about the the world as i saw it and i think i think too I wanted to be and I always want to be between genres because I like negotiating with the reader and I like asking the reader to negotiate what are the rules of this world? What is real? What should I take for granted? What should I not? Because I'm always I I feel that that should be more how we engage with actual life. I feel like we should be taking less for granted usually than we are. And so being a, awake to the terms of the, the fiction is for me a kind of practice for being a, awake to the, the reality we live in. So like broadly speaking, in terms of the, the strangeness and the, the unsettled genre, that's, that's my rationale. As far as the, the father character, David, in particular, the reason that he is the way he is. Oh, and, and how is he? Just so yeah. listeners know, like, let's yeah. give a thumbnail of this guy. Yeah. Sorry. So he's a, he's a creep. He's a spy. 
who um, he works for an unspecified agency. I, I think some readers doubt that he, he does work for an agency at all, which I totally understand because he's very secretive about it. But he has a lot of surveillance technology that he uses both inside his home where he he lives in sort of a commune in his in his big, beautiful home, as he consistently calls it with uh, all the beautiful young people that he's asked to live with him there. And he watches them and and listens to them. And he also, at the beginning of the book, is watching and listening to the main characters, to his his ex-wife, Lynn, and daughter, Mott, as sort of the, they have to accept that surveillance in order to be allowed to to live separately from him. And at the same time, he presents himself as sort of a, a free love hippie type who is, very, you know, in his own imagination, he's very nurturing. He is very supportive of the people around him and their happiness and health. And he and he wants to take care of them. And for me, I think a lot of what I'm talking about there is the in in the apocalypse genre, in the in the genre of apocalyptic fiction. The villain and the hero actually usually are fathers, and they're different models of fatherhood, right? There's the the hero is usually a strong, manly man who is dependable, but has a little bit of softness, a little bit of sensitivity to him. Um, the villain is frequently a guy who's just a little bit too manly, right? He's a little bit too domineering, a little bit too demanding, a little bit too right wing, and so he's an example of things having gone too far. And I always feel like that lets me as a reader off the hook a little bit because that is so much not the person I am and that's so much not the the people that I know. So I wanted to explore in a similar setting a person who is bad and creepy and authoritarian in the way that like I might be or a lot of the men in my life might be if given that opportunity and a lot of it is, I think, about surveillance and about controlling people and having continual access to the the lives and the bodies of the the people around us. Yeah, and just also this this tech, this issue of technology. And you know, we talked earlier about human beings not having the capacity to sort of handle our stuff because the technology is tipped out of control. And you know, I, it seems like we're already in a world where surveillance capabilities have escalated pretty rapidly. Like I'm sure if you have some technological know-how, you can surveil some some people you know pretty easily. And I guess if you're a sophisticated hacker, then it'd take it to the next level. But these opportunities exist out there. I guess you have to want to actualize them. But it's not an entirely healthy situation. And then you take it to the corporate level and you think about like data collection and data mining and all the money that can be made by understanding how people think and behave in their consumer existence and their online existence. And that's where I can start to get spun out too. Yeah. There's this, there's this, uh, natural resource that we are all sort of producing collectively together. Right. I've heard it described this way, which is like the, the data that we make by existing and interacting with each other. And there are folks who have the means and the know-how to tap into that and turn it into money and turn it into power and influence. And that's that's another one of those things that, like like we, I said, you know, we are not wired to handle. And I think that a lot of people, 
I think that we casually practice if if you were to really inventory your life and maybe maybe you're a saint in this regard but most people if you're if you inventory your life you'll find that you're doing a lot more surveillance than you realize you are on like the people that you care about and also on like weird strangers that you don't know anything about other than the fact that you're like watching them constantly how so you mean just like on your social media feeds yeah, exactly. There's so much stuff that I know about people that I barely know and I feel <laughs> compelled to track it, right? Like there are and I'm not I'm not going to say names here obviously, but th- there are people in my not in my life. That's the thing that makes it so weird. Where like a part of me has been trying to figure out for like the past 7, 10 years whatever, whether they are still married, right? That's one of those like little things that runs in the back of my head. It'll be a uh, people that were a couple at some point and I encountered them that way. And then because of social media, we're, we're connected to each other. And then it'll be a little while between like them mentioning each other and they don't appear in photos together. And a part of my brain is like, wait, are they even together anymore? Right, right, right. And yeah. like, why do I care? Yeah. I barely <laughs> know these people. I'm invested in their, like their relationship and their future. And you know, yeah, I'm totally, I've totally had that experience where it's somebody I've maybe even never met. It's somebody yeah. who's just on social and who, you know, is really like loud, you know, is constantly there. The algorithm keeps delivering, you know, this person for whatever reason. And they become a kind of character in your life, you know, that you see them every day. You see them sometimes more than you see people you actually know and love and care about. <laughs> Yeah. And then they and then they replace one of those 200 faces. Right. This is like it's an oversimplification and I'm not an expert. in this. I don't know. But like I I just when I first heard that idea that there's like 200 people you can keep track of. And then when you add one, you have to replace another. I got really obsessed with that. And I I feel that so strongly and I feel disoriented by it in terms of like how many of my 200 people are just randos on Twitter that I don't even like. <laughs> Well, and you're making me think of Vonnegut again, because he was very much invested in this like anthropological idea of how human communities are supposed to be organized and how much they have disintegrated, you know, over the course of history. And especially, I think, in modern history, 20th century onward. And I'm, I'm kind of on board with that. Like, I think we are lonely and depressed. A lot of it comes from not having a strong enough sense of connection uh, to our friends and neighbors and access to them, you know, because we live in geographically disparate locations or something. Yeah. yeah it's got its its ups and downsides, though. And so, like, one of the things that I, I think about that in that regard is, like, you know, I have a number of people in my family, in my in my social life who are trans. And I think that they benefit enormously from being able to connect with other people who are trans with being able to see that 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 is an experience that exists in the world sure and that you know the numbers are such that if we were living in my little 200 person villages whether they would have that and whether they would have the ability to organize uh politically whether they'd be able to find allies that they could count on in those circumstances i I think that there are good reasons to think that sometimes they would, right? I don't think that people are inherently anti-trans. I think it's a it's a political choice and it's a it's a project undertaken by creeps. But like you can see how that could be a real challenge in a way that the internet helps to to deal with. And so probably if we were thinking about a solution it would not be 
blowing up the entire internet, but finding a way to get people to invest in each other in their immediate areas, even if they aren't Twitter friends. Yeah. And just, I don't know, I think like a lot of the things we're talking about or a lot of the things that I'm thinking about along these lines involve pretty radical change in human behavior and in human organizational structures and attitudes. And I'd like to think we're capable of it eventually, but I don't know. And your book, I think, doesn't know, or maybe it does know that it's not possible. You know, it's, it's somewhere in between those two poles, but I guess we have to hold on to some shred of hope question mark yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> i mean i think i think things i think things can change uh, there's there's nothing that says they can't and they have right like historically things have changed tremendously over time i just you don't usually get to choose which change you get well i have so enjoyed talking with you i'm glad we got to spotlight this novel in the book club because it does a lot of things that really good genre fiction does like sci-fi dystopian fiction but it also like you say it lives in this kind of in-between space and functions really well as a literary novel and i feel like these kinds of books are rare you know books that can kind of do both at the same time and it's also a book that feels topical and relevant to the experience of the world that all of us are having one way or another whether it has to do with geopolitical unrest and the war in Ukraine or the pandemic or the climate. I mean, it's all coming at us. And this is a book that speaks to that one way or another. So kudos to you for sticking it out and doing the work. And I wish you the best of luck on whatever's next. Can you give us any hints about the next project or are you superstitious? I am. I am superstitious. I have made that mistake before, so I shouldn't do it again. Okay. I will respect that. I understand that. So I appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk and I wish you well. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I appreciate everything you, you said and the, and the book club and everything else. Like I said, I feel uh, so lucky these days. So thank you. All right. That is Mike McGinnis. His new novel is called Drowning Practice. It's available from Echo Books, the official March pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. You can find Mike on the internet at MikeMcGinnis.com. Follow him on Twitter at Mike McGinnis. He's also on Instagram. One more time, the novel is called Drowning Practice. Available wherever books are sold. Go get your copy right now. The Other People podcast is offered freely. I hope you will support it on Patreon. If you are a regular listener and you like the show and you get something from it, you can do that for as little as $1 a month. There are different options. You can get stuff, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a book club subscription. Just check it out at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you would like to pre-order my novel, that would be great. You can do that at bradlisty.com. The Other People podcast has its own official app. It's free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. If you have something to say to me, you would like to write me and tell me a story or give some feedback, the email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. The Other People Podcast has its own YouTube channel. You can subscribe. The entire archive is on YouTube. So go check it out on YouTube. Search for it by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy, and then smash the uh, subscribe button, as the kids like to say. I don't think there's anything else. 
Oh yeah, the email newsletter. I do an email newsletter every week. Once a week, that's it. If you would like to sign up for that, just go to otherppl.com or bradlisty.com and click on email newsletter in the left sidebar. It's very easy. It's free. And it's not onerous. I'm not going to badger you with emails. Just once a week, I share some things that are of interest to me. A few quick links. I tell you what the latest episode is. All right. I'm all done here. Thank you for tuning in. I'll be back next week with more content.